Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Most of us of a certain age remember the old Nintendo family computer system, that two-tone gray box, right? And those cartridges that went along with it. And with that, we also remember that many times those cartridges and the box itself would mess up, right? There were bugs in the system. But what if you were told that those... Most of us of a certain age remember the old Nintendo family computer system, that two-tone gray box, right? And those cartridges that went along with it. And with that, we also remember that many times those cartridges and the box itself would mess up, right? There were bugs in the system. But what if you were told that those bugs were not actually something to be overcome, but that those flaws added to the performance of the games and the platform? and have very real social, economic, and cultural consequences. Well, that's what Nathan Altice argues in his new book, I Am Error, the Nintendo Family Computer Entertainment System Platform. And we have him on New Books and Technology today. And we're going to be talking about this platform that so many of us recognize, so many of us is a part of our history. This is New Books and Technology. I'm your host, Jasmine McNeely. And one of the things we always like to do in the beginning, Nathan, is to just have the authors introduce themselves. So could you tell us who is Nathan Altice and, and what's what's your background? Um, well, I up until pretty recently, I was teaching for a living. Uh, I was an instructor at Virginia Commonwealth University, mm-hmm. where I was teaching in the kinetic imaging department in the School of the Arts there. Right now, I'm kind of I'm working as a, a research programmer, web designer at the University of Richmond for the Digital Scholarship Lab. Okay. Um, I'm a writer, obviously, and with a little bit of programming expertise. Um, musician was like sort of my primary arts background, uh, and I just mention all these because they all kind of play a part in how the book shaped together because it's got elements of all of those things. Um, And I studied actually at Virginia Commonwealth University as well in a kind of interesting interdisciplinary program called Media Art and Text, which was housed in the English department but crossed over to uh, Communications Department, School of the Arts um, as well. So it was this kind of experiment in doing an interdisciplinary PhD where they encouraged both creative work and uh, traditional scholarly work, you mm-hmm. know, like a dissertation and all that. So uh, what it ended up being is you get to do double the work. <laughs> so, you know, you make art projects and have to write a bunch as well. Um, but it's, those are the kind of programs that I've really been in since I was an undergraduate. I've always done these kind of weird hybrid programs because that's just sort of where my interests lay, you know, sort of the cross-section between humanities and the arts mm-hmm. and um, computer science and that sort of stuff. 
So tell 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 us more about that. Um, you said that's where your your uh, interest lay in that that cross section between the humanities, the arts, and um, computer science. What do you mean? Um, it's just that I've always kind of taken classes and at least in my academic career that I've always had tried to balance these different interests. And for a long time, it was a little bit more difficult to do that. I mean, if, so I entered into my uh, undergraduate program as an art major because I I thought I wanted to be a painter Mm -hmm. coming out of high school and quickly decided that I was not a very good painter (sighs) And that I much preferred to work on computers because I was a really lazy painter and it was much easier to open Photoshop at the time and put together a collage instead of, you know, spending several days on a painting. And, you know, when I was in high school and college, kind of in the mid 90s, uh, the web was just kind of becoming an interesting uh, platform to create things on. And I've discovered, oh, I can quickly put together a web page. And people can read it. And that was really exciting for me. And I think uh, working on web design got me into programming really early on. I took some of that in college. But then at the same time, I ended up being a sociology major because I got really attracted to, I guess, the big ideas, big theories, Mm -hmm. you know, like through Marx and Weber and Durkheim. And that kind of led to philosophy a little bit more, which I've dabbled in, and critical theory. Um, I just like, <laughs> I like, they're not particularly fashionable anymore, but I guess what you call these meta narratives, sure. <laughs> you know, the people that try to explain everything all at once. That was really interesting to me. And at the same time, you know, I was taking computer science classes um, and still doing fine arts and taking poetry classes and, I just, you know, and I was a musician as well. So I was in bands and it was really hard to kind of square all of these interests because I never really fit in exactly in any program. So Mm -hmm. I kept kind of creating programs of my own design and was really fortunate that these institutions allowed me to do that. That carried over into graduate school at University of Richmond and then finally into a PhD program at, at VCU. And uh, maybe it's just some sort of like obstinacy on my part that I just kind of want to do what I want <laughs> and and put together my own program. But I somehow got away with it. And um, I think that's sort of how I ended up writing a book that touches on a lot of these different things. There's a little bit of humanities in there. There's a little bit of computer science. There's a little bit of cultural studies. There's a little bit of uh, history of music and synthesizers. And I, I don't know, I like to think that it kind of took a person like me to write a book like that. Um, you know, everybody's approach to the Nintendo, I'm sure, would be really different. Mm-hmm. But happening to, you know, that was the, the platform that I grew up with. When I found out the, that they wanted a book on that platform, I was really excited because it was the one that I was most excited to write about. And I thought that I had uh, an interesting approach to it. Well, great. So, so you're taking us where we want to go. Why I am error? The title specifically. Well, the title, but also the book as as a whole. Like I, I you, you just said, you were um, interested in writing um, about the Nintendo system because you grew up with that system, and there was a, a call for it. Uh, but also, but but more, I guess, uh, overarchingly, why 
this book written the way you wrote it? Sure. So the book came about, um, you know, backing up to my graduate career again, uh, which, you know, started maybe 10 years ago. Uh, you know, when I was first getting my master's, I was really interested in video games. I was doing a lot on art and technology, and I was studying aesthetics and the philosophy of art and trying to apply that to new digital media. And I was, I had always been into video games, you know, as a hobby and was interested in how they were made. And there wasn't a whole lot of scholarly work on video games. You know, you could basically buy 10 books and that was it. (laughs) And that has changed dramatically in the past 10 to 15 years. I mean, new video game books come out every day, it seems. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was around, you know, 2008 or so when Ian Bogost and Nick Modfort announced that the platform studies was being started um, where they were focusing on a specific platform. And I got really excited to read it. And then when it came out, that was the Atari book, Racing the Beam. It was one of those golden academic moments when you're like, this book was written just for me. And I loved it. And I thought, wow, I would really love to read this book on the NES. But I was just starting my PhD. And so I was like, oh, somebody's going to get to it before me. So skip ahead about a year. And I was at a conference uh, for the Society for Textual Scholarship. And I did a paper on kind of the materiality of cartridges and arcade games. And I talked about Pac-Man and did a little bit on the NES. And it happened that uh, Stephen Jones, who ended up writing the Wii book, uh, he and his partner George were there talking about their um, uh, research into the Wii. And they said, hey, you should really pitch a proposal for the NES. And I said, well, that's really kind of you, but I you know, am just really in the middle of coursework for my PhD. And I need to do a dissertation first before I can tackle a book. And they said, well, just keep it in mind if it ever comes around. So about a year or so after that, there was an open call that said, we're looking for proposals for the following platforms, and the Nintendo was on it. And I thought, it would be silly for me to not at least to try to pitch a proposal. Mm-hmm. So I did. And over the course of several months, it ended up that um, that it worked out. You know, it kept getting bigger. I talked to my dissertation committee and they said, you would be a fool not to do this instead of the, I was doing like a more uh, philosophically oriented video game dissertation that I was uh, excited about and had done all my comprehensives based on that particular topic. Mm -hmm. But they said, you should really switch gears because you could potentially get a book from MIT out of this deal. So I said, okay. (laughs) And uh, they completely allowed me to change my dissertation um, basically the month I was supposed to start writing it. So it ended up that I had seven months to write the dissertation from start to finish. Wow. Research included. Yeah, so it became kind of a crazy race <laughs> to get this thing done. And that's what became the initial basis of the book. It was those five chapters that I wrote as the dissertation, which... Over the following year, I shaped into the book. So mm-hmm. that's kind of the genesis of, of what happened. It was, 
I sort of serendipitous, I, I suppose. I mean, being at the right place at the right time and maybe having the right interest and the right proposal. I know that I was in competition with someone else to do the NES book, and they they tried to get me to do the Game Boy book instead. And I said, I know nothing about the Game Boy and really fought hard to get the NES. So I think it all kind of worked out. And um, I subsequently met the person who was competing for the NES book, and I apologized to them for <laughs> But they they wrote another book, so it all worked out in the end. Well, good. But so the book that you wrote, though, you 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 know that you use a specific kind of methodology. You said the platform studies methodology for the book, and I want to know, like, first of all, for the audience, what does that mean? And secondly, why did you choose that kind of methodology for this book? Um, the reason that I well, I mean when you write a book for the platform studies, you kind of buy into the methodology, but at the same time, it's not a super rigid methodology in Mm -hmm. the sense that there haven't been a lot of models written for it so far. You know, there was basically, when I started writing, there was the Atari book and the Wii book. And that was basically it. Uh, The Amiga book came while I was writing and each book has had kind of a different approach to how they apply this methodology. But the idea being that much work on new media and digital media was uh, focusing a little bit too much on what would appear on the screen. So this idea of what's called screen essentialism, that you're really just looking at the end products. And Bogost and Montfort really kind of proposed that, well, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes uh, below the surface, in a matter of speaking. So it's really important what kind of processor was being used, what kind of uh, computer language was being used, what were the kind of material constraints that were shaping the visual and audio output that comes from these machines. What does it mean when an Atari controller has one button and a joystick versus an NES controller has a D-pad and four buttons? It um, it's really conducive to different types of play. And that was kind of the driving methodology behind what platform studies is about to mm-hmm. say, let's not just look at the screen, even though that's totally important, but let's look at the kind of subsurface beneath that. Let's look at the actual circuits and the actual code that are driving these things and see the way that creators are kind of in this conversation with the hardware to create the expressive product that comes from those machines. And um, to me, that was kind of a novel approach. I mean, there's predecessors in the kind of uh, materialism, you know, that was happening in philosophy and that has become sort of uh, more in fashion in the past five to 10 years. But in terms of digital media, you know, that was something that was kind of new. So we're not looking so much at the narrative of games. We're not looking so much at the graphics of games. We're really looking at the hardware that drives those things. So that became the initial approach. And I think that appealed to me because since about uh, 2003 or so, I had just had a kind of hobbyist interest in how the Nintendo worked. I was so fascinated with it as a kid that as I grew older and saw that people were actually still making Nintendo games, 
or making art projects based on Nintendo cartridges or making albums, uh, you know, using chip tunes, which means, you know, they were using the authentic, uh, sound chip that's within the NES. That how were these people working with this antiquated technology? How is that possible? Mm-hmm. And you start to find out, like, wow, they're using assembly language, you know, that dates basically from the early 80s. And they're still ringing these really fascinating tricks out of what we, you know, in popular culture would consider to be obsolete technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, in, in my artwork and in my studies, I had always been really interested in constrained platforms. I used to do, um, you know, like a series of visual, a series of digital photographs using old kind of antiquated digital cameras because I was really interested in aesthetically how, you know, these old sensor chips in these cameras looked different than a nicer camera that you could get today. Mm -hmm. And so that to me kind of was of the same piece of what I'd been doing uh, as a part of creative practice, it made sense to translate that to a video game platform. Mm. Now, now, when you say platform, I think it's it's important, um, your definition of what platform. So in the book, you, you note that you're not just talking about the single console, but you're considering the network of objects that come with or are part of uh, the console system. Right, and I'm wondering, like, the importance of that in understanding a a platform like the NES. I think because the NES, um, in because of you know, in some part, just serendipity in terms of the time that it was released and its popularity, it's undergone this kind of fascinating series of transformations. Because we think of a computer platform as a kind of rigid system of hardware that it's a specific controller and a cord that attaches to a machine that has a specific CPU and a graphics processor. And it takes cartridges that are a certain shape. And all that is absolutely true. It is a defined set of hardware parameters, basically that um, allows developers to create you know, cartridges for that particular system or discs in today's uh, platforms. But it also is an abstraction. You know, a platform can mean uh, all these different permutations of that particular hardware. And the reason that I talk about that is because I'm really interested in uh, hardware emulation because the way that most people encounter Nintendo games nowadays is not through the original cartridge played in the original machine. It's via emulation and emulation sort of became, you know, a dirty word in the middle, in the mid nineties because it was really being used for piracy so that people could play Nintendo games that they didn't own. They could have the collection of the entire system on their computer and, play all the games that maybe they had not had access to before. Now, while that part was true, it was also, you know, changing the way that players were interacting with these video games because emulation allows you to do things that weren't possible before, mm-hmm. like stopping a game at any time or recording a movie or um, uh, playing online in the case of the NES. All of these things were not possible with the original hardware. But at the same time, that 
abstracted definition of the NES is still the NES platform, even though it's an emulation. So it's at the same time, it is not the same object. And in a weird way, it's not even an object at all because it's a virtual machine. It's defined in software, but it's also still that original NES Mm -hmm. and even not, you know, as, in as extreme examples as an emulator is, Today, we have things like hardware clones of systems. So you can buy something like a Retron 5, for instance, that plays NES games, the original cartridges, and they're these weird kind of hybrid machines that are both hardware and software at the same time because they're often running uh, an emulation layer on the hardware and all of these things, I would argue, are still an NES. It's not just the you know toaster-shaped box from the 1980s. Mm-hmm. It's, it's emulators, it's clones, it's all sorts of hardware revisions of that system at the same time. So you know, my argument kind of near the end of the book is that platform expands, you know, and it also becomes kind of fuzzy at the edges as soon as you create the par- parameters for this machine, it, be- it gets a little bit slippery because then you can define that machine uh, through abstraction virtually. Mm-hmm. And another important concept in the book, uh, it seems to me, is the idea of translation, not just translating from Japanese to English, which is an important part of a, the I am error um, uh, title as well as um, in, in, in the game but translating for different audiences and in different social and cultural situations. Right. Um, yeah. So that, I mean, that's sort of the driving thesis of the book or the driving structure of the book that number one, um, you know, this was a Japanese console that came out in 1983 for a Japanese audience um, now, Nintendo always kind of had their sights set on introducing it to the United States, but it took two years to do so. And a lot of, you know, what I call material translations had to take place in between the Famicom, which is, or the family computer, which is what uh, the system's name was in Japan, and the Nintendo Entertainment System. So if you look at the original Famicom, it's green and white, it's very tiny. It has controllers that are attached to the console itself. Its cartridges have a different shape. They're much smaller. They are actually modeled after cassettes because, mm-hmm. you know, culturally in Japan, the Walkman was huge, you know, was uh, really culturally important in Japan and also in the United States later on. So they wanted this affinity between video games and cassettes, and they were called cassettes in Japan. Um, the design was much more toy-like, and it was designed for Japanese domestic spaces. It was meant to be on the floor. It was uh, designed to, um, you know, uh, fit into the Japanese household, fit into Japanese hands, so on and so forth. To take that to an American audience, they had to consider all sorts of different cultural translation translations, not just linguistic. So. The surface level of translation is when a game is made in Japan and brought to the United States, there's a process called localization, which means, number one, you're translating the Japanese text to English. 
Number two, you're also translating certain cultural allusions from Japanese to English.、Mm-hmm. And that can be a very complex and difficult process because there might be a game that's based on a popular anime or manga in Japan that will not have any familiarity to、uh, an American audience. So, how do they do that? Sometimes they just decide to go with it and try and.、Um, Just use the same characters. Sometimes they change the name. Sometimes they completely change the graphics and scenario and setting and kind of dress up this older game with something newer that will make more sense to American audiences. Sometimes they change the box art. There's all sorts of different types of localization that can take place. But then you also have the idea of、uh, translating the object itself. So In 1983, the, the,、uh, the American video game market was in this massive decline. It wasn't a worldwide issue. In Japan, you know, video games were doing quite well, and they didn't have the same console ecosystem. Their arcades were doing really well. It's a whole different set of, set of circumstances. But as soon as they decided to bring the console to the United States, they were suddenly kind of in a world of pain where people were saying, Sorry, we're not really interested in video games anymore. They're kind of passe,、mm-hmm. they're losing money.、Um, so, no, thank you. So, Nintendo has to adopt a number of strategies to make this thing work. One of which is, well, let's redesign it to where the cartridge isn't sticking out of the top of the machine. So, you know, if your fancy friends come by and see that you <laughs> have a console on the entertainment center, you won't be embarrassed that you've been caught playing video games. So, the cartridge now tucks into the machine rather than sticking out of the top.、Mm-hmm. They change the palette of it so it doesn't look like a toy robot anymore. So, it changes to these kind of demure monochromatic color scheme that's kind of become iconic for the NES, which is, you know, gray, black, and white. Right. So, there's a lot of these things that happen, you know, extending the size of the cartridge so it looks like the boxes are more like VHS tapes. There's all manner of things. That happen to make this thing fit into a completely different social, economic, and cultural context. So that's why I was really pleased that the title kind of worked out to be about translation.、Mm-hmm. And、um, it, I wanted that title before I'd even written a word of the book, just because I thought, wow, that's a really good title. I would really <laughs> like to fit. So、uh, fortunately, I think that all kind of、uh, fit in like a jigsaw. Now, now, if we were to go like full circle, it would seem that errors in you know, translating the actual text, but also glitches in the systems.、Um, you, you note a couple of different games where there are certain glitches、um, where people or players don't understand our glitches or miss certain things, for example. But it, it would seem like these errors are important to cultural and, and social understanding of games in some instances.、Um, I think so, because you know, a lot of these things have become ingrained、mm-hmm. into the culture of video games, into the grammar and lexicon of video games.、Um, you know, just anecdotally, anytime that I'm talking to someone about You know, say a person that's not into academics, not into video game studies, 
And they say, oh, what's your book about? And I say, the NES. They're like, oh, I remember blowing into the cartridges all the time. That's like the number one thing that people say to me, that that has become kind of a part of the culture of video games. A lot of people relate to that. Oh, these things always broke down. And, you know, the reason that that happened was because of that weird design translation that they had to make to have the cartridge fit into the system. And because of this kind of early form of DRM that Nintendo designed to keep unauthorized um, developers from creating cartridges for their console, they put in this thing called the lockout chip that Mm -hmm. basically had this digital handshake between cartridge and console that would make sure that it was a Nintendo approved cartridge. Um, And there's, you know, much more subtle things like, you know, the NES can only handle eight sprites at a time on a particular scan line. And what that means is that any further sprite that's added to that row on the screen will disappear. And the way that developers handled this was that they would constantly cycle sprites into and out of this particular region in memory memory that handles sprites. And the result on screen is that you have things flicker. So if you have large objects that happen to line up on a particular row, you see that parts of the body start to flicker in and out of existence. Mm -hmm. And when you now have you know, developers that are emulating the style of so-called 8-bit uh, era of video games, they end up reproducing glitches like that that, you know, wouldn't surface on a modern console. They don't have those same limitations. But to kind of nail the authentic look of that particular era is you start to build in those errors as part of the design space itself, which is a really strange thing if you think about it. <laughs> And I think that, you know, computers, anyone that uses them day to day, they understand that malfunction, glitch, and breakdown is really part of our interaction with any kind of computational system. They just don't work. You know, it's impossible for them to be perfect. There's this kind of beautiful error that's built into all of them that we can't really circumvent. And uh, most of the times, a glitch, you know, it's going to be kind of troublesome. It depends on the circumstance. You know, if it's an ATM and it has a glitch, that's really bad news. But if it's a video game and something interesting happens to where you clip through a wall and suddenly you're in this weird kind of nether space, that's kind of aesthetically interesting and culturally interesting. And you're finding that a lot of designers are now building glitches into the aesthetics of the games themselves, mm-hmm. which is, you know, kind of peculiar, but also kind of beautiful at the same time. So, so would error be considered an affordance of a platform like uh, the NES? I think always. I think for, <laughs> for any platform whatsoever. I mean, that's what I find to be the most interesting element of most of the platform study books is the point at which the platforms break down. Mm-hmm. What are their computational limits and how did developers kind of push against those limits to figure out new tricks? So to, to bring up the scan line uh, flickering for, as another example, in the legend of Zelda, 
you may not notice, but most of the time when Link is in a dungeon and he exits through one of the doors on the left or right, there's this really nice effect where he kind of goes under the door frame. <laughs> and achieving that particular effect was done by using that uh, sprite scan line flaw. Basically, there's a stack of invisible sprites by that door so that when Link passes through them, his sprites disappear. Mm. So they're using that limitation to actually produce a really interesting graphical effect. And that's the kind of thing that I find really interesting about any platform is how did developers respond to those limitations? How did those constraints drive creativity? Mm. So one of the things we have instituted at New Books and Technology is the elevator pitch. So if for some reason a person is just tuned in right now to listen to uh, the podcast and hear about I Am Error, and you have one minute to catch their attention and tell them what it's about and, and get them interested so they go to you know Amazon or Barnes and & Noble and, and, and buy the book or go to the library and, and check it out, what would you tell them? I think that if you have any interest whatsoever in the Nintendo Entertainment System, this book is a really kind of demystification of how those games worked. And if you don't have any interest in <laughs> Nintendo Entertainment System, but do have an interest in game development or constrained platforms or even, I think, music and synthesizers, um, I hit on each of those in relation to the Nintendo and how it operates. So I, I do find that a lot of people are fascinated by this particular system because it was so culturally resonant. Mm -hmm. It was so popular. So many folks have either grown up with it or um, played it at some point in their lives that this explains kind of how this thing worked and why it was made, who made it, and what were the kind of challenges they faced at the time? Sounds good to me. So what's next for you? I am just getting the preliminary research together to write. Uh, my second book is going to be all about emulation. Um, it's going to be called The Virtual Machines, I believe, uh, keeping with the pattern of picking the title before I have the book. <laughs> Um, but it's really, I mean, the last chapter of the book, which is called Tool Assisted, is really kind of a preview for what I'm getting at. And I really want to explore what does it mean to use a virtual instantiation of a hardware platform? And oftentimes, you know, we think of a computer as a, a physical object, but most of the time, computers are mocked up in code before they ever exist as a physical object. Mm -hmm. They are emulated first. And I want to expand it beyond video games because emulation has become a really important facet of, for instance, library preservation. Because we now have librarians that are faced with the task of archiving uh, materials that are coming uh, to them that were born digital. So say that, you know, an author donates their uh, all of their computers that they use to write, you know, uh, a series of books. How in the world do you preserve those files? Do you keep working systems around 
and hope that the floppy disks don't go bad and hope that bit rot doesn't, you know, eventually degrade a CD-ROM. You really can't rely on that. You know, these physical objects degrade. People no longer know how to boot up a particular computer. They get rare. They get expensive. So increasingly we're seeing uh, emulation initiatives happening at libraries mm-hmm. and also happening in the art world because they're facing the same problem. How do you preserve net artwork? How do you preserve something that was made on a particular computer system? And there's some really interesting work being done here, but the humanities haven't touched this at all. I mean, if you look up emulation, you just can't find any work done on it. And even those authors that are really interested in platform studies and material studies of digital media don't really make an important distinction between emulation and the computer system itself. And I think that is uh, a niche that needs to be explored from a humanities um, approach. Mm -hmm. So that sounds good. And and hopefully you, you come back on new books and technology when that's uh, all finished as well. Of course. So the book is I Am Error, the Nintendo Family Computer Entertainment System Platform. It's by Nathan Altice, and he was kind enough to come on New Books and Technology today with us. And so we thank you, Nathan. Thank you, Jasmine. I appreciate it. No problem. So this has been New Books and Technology. Have a great week. 